From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Yes, we live in a divided America. Our politics hobbled by bipartisanship, our public squares polluted with rancor. Any thorough study of history reveals that there have always been political, economic, and racial divisions in the United States. Princeton historians and best-selling authors Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz add gender and sexuality to those fissures. Their book, Fault Lines, follows how those divisions have become wider and deeper since the resignation of Richard Nixon shook the foundations of our democracy. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere, to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. Fault Lines details the multiple forces since 1974 that replaced cohesion and compromise with win-at-all-cost competition and conflict running rampant today. Julian Zelizer and co-author Kevin Cruz will be at the Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September 1st, but we're going to pick up the story from there with Professor Zelizer beforehand, who joins us from New York. Hello and welcome. Hi, and thanks for having me. So why begin here, August 9th, 1974? Well, we decided to start uh, around... President Richard Nixon's resignation and then the pardon of of Nixon, which we think is a really important moment. His successor, President Gerald Ford, uh, pardons Nixon, who who had resigned in the middle of a huge scandal. Uh, And the pardon meant to heal the country does just the opposite. People are outraged that the president has essentially been let off the hook. uh, And a lot of the distrust of institutions, starting with government, really is visible uh, and palpable in the aftermath of Watergate. So we thought that was an important and and good point to kick off this very complex story. At the time of his resignation, 79% of Americans thought it was the right thing to do. So one could argue that resignation proved that the system worked. How did that cohesion unravel? Yeah, well, it it didn't uh it didn't feel that way uh in the end, meaning a lot of the dysfunction that had been brought out by Richard Nixon, the way in which presidents had excessive power or the way that power had been used uh not only to intimidate opponents, but how it'd been used in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. All those were so grandiose that even the resignation, which many people supported, uh, wasn't enough to rebuild the kind of support in government uh, that had existed in the 1940s and 1950s. The erosion had been pretty severe, uh, and that's why it doesn't only continue after he resigns, but we argue it gets worse. Hmm. Well, after his resignation, a new group of Watergate babies, as they're called, a wave of new Democrats in Congress, empowered and motivated to fight corruption with new legislation. So what is going on in these other fault lines at that time? Let's start with the economy. Well, the economy is a big one. In the 1970s, we we see the origins of a lot of the issues we talk about today. Those old jobs in the manufacturing sector, uh, like the automobile industry, which had been the heart and soul of the American economy, unionized, pretty well-paying, secure jobs, 
those start to vanish during the 1970s. Uh, that economy starts to suffer as a result of competition uh, from countries such as Japan and West Germany, uh, and they start to be replaced by service sector jobs, which are not quite as secure, uh, where the benefits aren't quite as good. And so what you see in the 70s is the emergence of the economy, which we still live in, uh, where the middle class is not as strong as it used to be, and one where the division between wealthy Americans and poor Americans keeps getting greater and greater. And and that's a story of the 70s, and it was most visible in the gas lines in 1973 and in 1979 when we had an oil crisis, uh, and there was more limited supply of energy here. And many Americans waiting in line for gas, if they could even get it, uh, felt like the country was falling apart. Yeah, you tell a story in the book of an uh, energy executive actually being in one of those gas lines and being offered a place at the front. What happened there? Yeah, the the uh, gas attendant asked him if he wants to, you know, go around the line and come up to get his gas, and and he basically, you know, says, uh, "No, that's the last thing I want to do uh, because people are." Uh, angry enough already. Uh, so the last thing an oil executive wanted in the 70s was to be front and center anymore. Okay, so you have this economic malaise and energy crisis going on into this national and global mess because we have the Middle East oil embargo. Steps Jimmy Carter in the election of 1976 presented himself as a political outsider. What did he grasp about changing Americas that other candidates didn't at the time? One basic issue he really understood was that the distrust in Washington itself was the issue. More than liberal conservative, it was this thirst in the country for a candidate who wasn't part of our political system, who could promise something better than either Richard Nixon or Lyndon Johnson. And, and his basic promise during a lot of the campaign was just that you could trust him. Uh, and so he used his background as a peanut farmer, as as part of of Georgia life, uh, as a as an asset against much more experienced candidates, and it worked. He also understood how the political process was changing. So he really saw that uh, Democrats had reformed their nomination system in the early 70s, and they made the Iowa caucus, they made the primaries, the way in which candidates would be selected rather than the party bosses in the convention. And that's how he campaigns, and he does it really well. We're getting a historian's perspective on what divides America with Julian Zelliser, an author with Kevin Cruz of Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. He's author of several books, in fact, on American public affairs and politics and columnist for CNN. He's among those featured at the upcoming Decatur Book Festival. So Jimmy Carter encourages tightening the belt. There's one crisis hitting him after another. Three Mile Island, uh, the Chrysler is near meltdown, the Iran hostage crisis in the end of his term. But significant rallying of economic forces against these democratic reforms and economic downturn. How does that affect us going forward? Well, uh, he, he governs, as you're saying, in very difficult times, and, and quickly a lot of his support erodes. The Democrats are divided over ha how to handle a lot of the big issues. 
Uh, he's more to the center on issues like the economy, so he's trying to find what today we would call a, a middle ground, uh, where other Democrats like uh, Senator Ted Kennedy are really saying we need robust government intervention, we need to help people who are struggling. Uh, but in the end, the economy, uh, you know, is is bad by the time he comes up for re-election. And Ronald Reagan, who is part of a, a burgeoning conservative movement in American politics, capitalizes on the state of the economy. We have the oil crisis still, and we have a combination in this country of high unemployment and high inflation, two things economists always said would never go hand in hand. It was called stagflation. And so Reagan uses it in 1980, and, and he tells Americans that the best way to improve the economy is to get rid of Jimmy Carter, and, and Carter can never really get around that argument. Well, and in the meantime, you have businesses who are fearing the loss of free enterprise, starting to coalesce around, you know, in response to regulations like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Acts, which were Nixon administration initiatives. That's exactly right. Uh, in the 70s, even though we, we often talk and, and write about the shift to conservatism, which does happen, uh, liberalism is still there. Liberal policies and liberal institutions are alive and well. And in some ways, they're growing in the 70s. And business regulation is one area where the Democratic Congress throughout the 70s really expands uh, the hands of, of the federal government to protect workers, to protect the environment. So a lot of what conservatism is talking about are not policies just from the New Deal or the 1960s, but policies in the 70s where they feel, big business, that they are under attack. Hmm. Well, uh, let's get to one of those other fault lines, race, not even a decade after the civil rights movement. How is this traditional division widening in the 70s and, and begin to stamp our politics going forward. Well, in the 70s, we, we start to turn as a nation toward the issue of institutional racism, meaning the way in which racism is inscribed into daily life, into the schools that we go to, uh, into the way that our laws are written. And, and we move away from the 60s questions of integration uh, or voting rights toward these very difficult, difficult issues. And as the government starts to talk and debate these kinds of questions, such as schooling, uh, it really opens up incredible fissures, not just between the parties, but within the parties over civil rights. Uh, and you see political movements really start to uh, divide over kind of what should be the place of racial justice in post-1960s America. Right. So you get this counter movement against busing, for one thing, that touches a lot of people's lives and prevailing liberation movements of the time, like the push for women's equality and gay rights movement. And begin to see, uh, as you describe it, a new coalition of social conservatives and capitalist libertarians. Can you distinguish here for us between the religious right and the new right, themselves traditionally separated by fault lines? Yeah, I mean, the, the conservative movement that, that comes together in the 70s and really comes together in 1980 through Reagan is actually many different factions. And so the religious right or the moral majority, as Jerry Falwell called it, one of the leaders of the movement, really was focused on cultural issues and issues related to reproductive rights and gender equality. So everything from the content of popular culture 
to uh, access to abortion to the Equal Rights Amendment, which was a big issue in the 70s. Uh, these are the kinds of questions that animate uh, religious conservatives who are saying we have to enter into the political realm and mm-hmm. not remain free. The new right is is many other groups, such as business leaders, who basically want lower taxes and fewer regulations. They have little interest in the issues that concern the moral majority. And you have neoconservatives, former Democrats and some Republicans, who believe that after Vietnam, the Democratic Congress was pulling back too much from an aggressive stance toward communism. And so these are all different factions that we group together uh, under the banner of the new right, under the banner of the conservative movement. And and one of the tricks that uh, leaders such as Ronald Reagan have to figure out is how do you keep them all on the same page? Because their interests were very different. One of the things you do throughout the book is sprinkle how these changes and divisions were reflected in popular culture, how economic woes were reflected in film and television. What was your decision there, adding that to this book and and to the course, I guess, that you were teaching at Princeton? So this comes out of a course that we uh, taught at Princeton University. I continue to teach it. And and in this course and in the book, we try to use popular culture in two ways. One is to show films and songs and television shows that really reflect the mood of an era uh, or things that were changing in a decade. So in the book, we talk about the movie Network uh, to really discuss the way in which the news was changing and how television news was becoming more dominant and what that meant. We talk about films like Taxi Driver that capture the the sense of uh, angst uh, about urban America and about the economy. But we also talk about popular culture as part of the story, the changes in popular culture uh, from the content of what is shown to the technology through which it is presented is actually part of how the fragmentation happens. So a lot of our book uh, discusses the, the role of of media uh, and, and new media in our public square to explain why politics unfolds in a particular way. And of course, there's disco. So we're, as we take a break, we're going to leave you with the Tramps Burn Baby Burn, one unifying response to the economic and social doldrums of the 70s and early 80s. And we'll come back with the roots of today's polarized nation with Julian Zelizer, Princeton historian and co-author of Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. He's going to be at the Decatur Book Festival coming up on Labor Day weekend. This is On Second Thought. Stay with us. We're back with On Second Thought from GBBM Virginia Prescott with author Julian Zelizer, among the writers featured at the upcoming Decatur Book Festival. He's an author and editor of several books on American history and politics. His newest, written with fellow Princeton University professor Kevin Cruz, is called Fault Lines, and it follows how political, economic, racial, gender, and sexuality divisions in the country since 1974 have been exploited in their telling by increasingly aggressive politics and a fractured partisan media. 
The rise of punk rock and early hip-hop, like Grandmaster Flash's The Message, which we're hearing now, were popular culture reflections of the changing mood of the times. So we're going to roll more into the 80s and the Reagan Revolution, supported by emerging new right and religious right movements. A little more on the religious right you mentioned. Jerry Falwell had argued that religious leaders should have no role in politics. What turned? Yeah, that 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 changes. the The first uh, real issue that gets a lot of religious leaders involved in politics is actually the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. And uh, just as much as abortion, for example, you see the religious rights start to enter into the public sphere, and, and argue that this uh, amendment posed a threat to the family. Uh, uh, institutionalizing equal gender rights would really be a major problem uh, in the future of the nuclear family. And, and that's one issue that they mobilize on. And the second is is abortion. After the Roe v. Wade uh, decision in 1973, uh, which protected access uh, to abortion, you see slowly, gradually, more religious leaders start to take this on, uh, especially by the second part of the decade. And finally, you have new Republicans who are open to alliances with these religious leaders. So uh, the uh, leaders of the conservative movement, the Reagans and others, are open uh, to forming a coalition that doesn't just include business leaders, but includes these religious leaders. And so all of this comes together uh, and is the basis for, for the moral majority. Right. And the moral majority formed in 1979. Reagan rode this optimism or, or sense of optimism uh, or frustration over the economy. Um, got a big boost from this burgeoning religious right movement and politically from the new right in this tool of direct mail. Now, I'm trying to understand how they got behind him. I mean, Reagan had been divorced. Religious conservatives usually couldn't get behind that. And, and under him, the deficit swells from 2 to $12 billion in the first term, which is, had been an anathema to conservative politicians. So how was he able to maintain their support for this 1984 campaign? It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Well, the religious right, it's really interesting to look back at their origins. And you see they're very strategic from the beginning. Uh, and, and we talk about that in contemporary times all the time. Uh, but, yeah, Reagan as a person didn't exactly fit the bill of what they were calling for uh, in terms of leadership. Uh, equally important, in the first term, a lot of uh, leaders from the moral majority are openly critical of the president. They say, you know, he campaigned using them for support, but by 1982, 1983, they're writing and giving speeches saying, hey, he's doing very little on abortion. He's doing very little on appointing people who are allied with us. And they were quite frustrated. Uh, but, you know, 1984 comes around. He, he's still the best bet in town. Uh, they don't believe that the Democratic Party is aligned with their values or their agenda. They are excited that Reagan is being more aggressive in pushing forth conservative federal court appointments. Uh, and they do believe that if reelected, he offered them the best chance of dealing with the issues they cared about. So they were very strategic and accepted a lot of the limitations of him and his presidency in the first term and signed up for another round in 84. 
Well, there are a couple of critical things that dissolve in the Reagan era, breaking the monopoly of AT&T, which had been the delivery platform for television networks, and of the fairness doctrine. What does that signal for the future of media and how these fault lines widen? That was a, a really a big decision uh, in retrospect, and it, it's in 1987 uh, the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission, gets rid of this rule that they had followed since 1949, the Fairness Doctrine, and it basically said if a radio show or a TV uh, show presents one side of a political issue, they have to present the other side. Uh, and it wasn't always uh, adhered to. Many uh, conservative radio show hosts had broken it or uh, challenged it directly. Uh, but it did create this norm that producers constantly thought about. And it did limit some of the politicization of, uh, of news uh, that would happen after. And it was a check. It was a countervailing force. The FCC gets rid of it. Reagan doesn't support it. There are a lot of conservatives who say it's an unneeded regulation. And between 1987, when it's abandoned, and about 1992, you see a massive proliferation of conservative talk radio. This is the heyday of the Rush Limbo shows and, and shows like that that just change the kind of news people are listening to. It's openly political. It's openly partisan. And it only presents one side. And then after that, TV will follow. Uh, Fox News is created in 1996. And, and ever since then, there's been really no kind of strong uh, force from government rules saying that you really need to be objective and present both sides of any question. Right. There were these deregulation moves that Reagan supported, significant tax cuts early in his administration. But there are other policies that might be unthinkable for conservatives today under the Reagan administration and then later Bush administration. Uh, Reagan called us a, a nation of immigrants and moved for reforms. And, of course, late in his administration began talking with Gorbachev to the horror of cold warriors. What effect did that have on the far right? Yeah, I, I mean, two different kinds of issues. With immigration, you see that that what conservatism meant in the 80s was pretty different than where it is today. Uh, on on this issue, Reagan, you know, he was pushing for some kind of immigration reform, but the kinds of speeches he gives about immigration in 1986, where he pushes this reform, uh, really wouldn't fit in, in most of the Republican Party today. The problem of illegal immigration should not, therefore, be seen as a problem between the United States and its neighbors. Our objective is only to establish a reasonable, fair, orderly, and secure system of immigration into this country and not to discriminate in any way against particular nations or people. And so the far right is is far right on on immigration at this point. It's not till the 90s you see a real hard line anti-immigration view really gain hold uh, with within the party. The talks with Gorbachev are amazing, and, and we, we give a lot of time to this issue. Reagan had been one of the most conservative voices on foreign policy. In the 70s, he made his name attacking Republicans and Democrats who were open to negotiations with the Soviet Union. Early in his presidency, he calls the Soviet Union evil uh, and says we can't even have arms agreements. We can't even have arms negotiations uh, because they're not to be trusted. 
But in 86, 87, uh, and finally in 88, he negotiates a, a very important arms agreement uh, that he then makes sure gets through the Senate, uh, that not only does he talk with Gorbachev, the new leader of the Soviet Union, but he reaches a big deal that helps end the Cold War. And a lot of conservatives are mad at Reagan. They think he had been tricked. They think this is disastrous, but they learn to live with it. Uh, and, and he's able, because of his capital, to push this through. Why can't America get along? Well, my guest, Julian Zelizer, is giving us a short course in history. He is the author of Fault Lines, and he and his co-author, Kevin Cruz, will be at the Decatur Book Festival. Well, after the Reagan era, 1988, some historians point to George H.W. Bush aide Lee Atwater as the architect of win-at-all-costs political campaigning. Can you give us a little on this one-time Atlantan and how his Southern strategy fits into your read of leveraging fault lines for a political gain? Yeah, so he's a, a professional uh, campaign person, a strategist, and he had been part of the Reagan campaigns. But in 88, he really steps to the uh, forefront running George H.W. Bush's campaign against Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. And, and Atwater is one of those politicians who sees the divisions in the country and and rather than running away from them, embraces them and tries to use them as a way to maintain Republican power. And in the campaign that he runs in 88, he plays on a lot of the racial antagonisms in the country with a, a famous set of ads uh, about a government furlough program in Massachusetts. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. He runs ads accusing the Democrats of supporting burning the flag and not wanting to say the Pledge of Allegiance. He takes all these cultural and social uh, points of fragmentation and tries to use them to separate Republicans from Democrats and create a winning Republican coalition. And we've seen his method used again and again since that campaign uh, by a lot of prominent officials in the GOP. Well, the George H.W. Bush does win, does throw a bone to the religious right by naming Dan Quayle as his running mate. But he also says uh, throughout his administration, it's urgent to address climate change, uh, initiates the costly American with Disabilities Act, despite resistance from business communities. And since your book is about like how these fissures formed, would those acts even be possible today from a Republican president? No, we, we wouldn't see a lot of the kinds of legislation Reagan and then Bush were open to and pushed would not be acceptable. And, and part of the story of our book is the rightward drift of the Republican Party and how this happened. And so the environmental programs of, of Bush are a perfect way to see the turning point that happens in the 1990s and early 2000s, where on an issue like the environment, you move from George H.W. Bush pushing for legislation and accepting uh, certain kinds of regulations to protect the environment uh, to a moment many decades later where the basic science of climate change isn't even accepted. So so the Republican Party undergoes a change in the course of our book, and, and you can see just how dramatic it is from the late 1980s through today. 
How about the leftward drift? Where are Democrats going at this time in response to or to counterbalance what's going on in the Republican Party? Yeah, we, we argue it's it's not uh, equal. Uh, so you do have a leftward drift in the Democratic Party and uh, on certain questions uh, such as uh, gender uh, equality or racial justice, you have more Democrats uh, after the 1980s and 1990s who are demanding that the party take a stronger stand on these issues. And when Bill Clinton is president in the 1990s, a lot of Democrats are divided because uh, he tries to move the party to the center. He tries to abandon a lot of traditional uh, Democratic issues, and he's often hostile to this left-wing uh, base of the party. Uh, but importantly, we argue in the end, the Democrats remain much more divided as a party, openly divided, uh, with a stronger center than you see in the Republican Party. And so the evolution is more dramatic on one side than the other. Well, a couple of big defining events of the that 90s era. First of all, 1991, Rodney King, savagely beaten by L.A. police after a traffic stop in L.A., uh, captured on a video camera, and there were widespread riots in 1992. Once again, if you're just joining us, this is the reaction we're seeing. Live pictures from KCAL in Los Angeles. Reaction, of course, to the acquittal of four officers accused of using excessive force in the videotape beating of Rodney King. And then along the gender fault line, the 1991 televised hearings after Anita Hill accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. If what you say this man said to you occurred, why in God's name would you ever speak to a man like that the rest of your life? That's a very good question. And I'm sure that I can't not answer that to your satisfaction. That is one of the things that I have tried to do today. Anita Hill there, of course, pilloried not only by Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, but Democrats, namely Joe Biden, who's since apologized. But let's look at that. What effect did these kind of events have on gender politics and identity at that time in the 90s? Well, well, the King riots uh, really uh, pointed to problems in policing uh, and race uh, that had been talked about since since the Kerner Commission in 1968, uh, a commission Lyndon Johnson put together. Which implicated uh, white people on the formation of the ghetto. Have I got that right? Absolutely. It actually uses the term white racism uh, to describe why the cities were the way they were. And one of the big issues had been policing. And they argued that, uh, you know, African-Americans were scared of what the police would do to them, regardless of uh, what they were doing. And when the Rodney King uh, uh, incident happens and and the police uh, beat him and it's captured on a Sony cam uh, by someone who's watching and that video goes viral in today's language uh, on cable television, it, it creates a sense of outrage because they see what decades earlier had been described in written form. And when the police are uh, acquitted, it leads to these horrible riots. And um, and and for many civil rights activists, it's, it's not a moment of resolution. Uh, the riots are devastating. The effects and the decision about the police was devastating, and it creates this ongoing conversation in the civil rights community 
that continues through today. And Anita Hill is equally uh, important. Uh, it It is a, an awakening uh, politically for many women as they watch the Senate Judiciary Committee basically brush aside um, what Anita Hill was saying. Uh, some of the senators are dismissive of, of what she was uh, accusing Clarence Thomas of. Uh, not all the witnesses are allowed to testify. Uh, and, and after those hearings are over, you have a surge of women running for office. Uh, in 1992, a number of prominent women win election to Congress. It's called the Year of the Woman. Uh, and they're determined not only to deal with issues like sexual harassment, but to try to change the culture of Washington so that leadership is not all male uh, and, and that new leaders are responsive to the questions that were exposed in those hearings. All right. With Why Can't We Live Together by Timmy Thomas in the background, we are going to take a short break and finish up our look at recent history to inform the question of how we got here to this time of political disunity. Julian Zelizer is with us. He's co-author of Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Stick around. We're going to talk about how putting wedges in these divisions became standard operating procedure that continues today. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. There are a number of recent books, articles, and columns pointing out the intractable differences in American politics and culture and society. How did we get here? Well, historians Julian Zelizer and his colleague Kevin Cruz considered that question for a popular class at Princeton called Fault Lines. The course follows recent history to trace the roots of political polarization. They follow the breakdown of consensus-building democratic norms, persistent divisions in racial and economic realities, and the fissures over gender and sexuality, and the fractured media and technological landscapes that allow us to retreat into our comfortable, albeit hardened positions. They're going to be at the Decatur Book Festival to talk about the book that came out of the course, which is also called Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. One of them is my guest today, Jillian Zelizer. Well, Julian, you cover this era, <laughs> huge sprawl in about 400 pages, so we can, of course, get to all of it. But I do want to get to that well-known Georgian, former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. You cover his role in developing a new conservative playbook, beginning with the formation of the Conservative Opportunity Society. How did he play that game? Yeah, Gingrich is a, an enormous figure in American politics. My next book uh, is, is about him. Uh, and and he's, he uses the House of Representatives as a base for a new year of Republican politics. The Conservative Opportunity Society, which is created in 83, is a small group of uh, rebellious Republicans who are willing to shake things up. They're willing to be confrontational with the Democratic Party. They're willing to not listen to their own senior 
senior leaders who say that you have to go along to get along, and they're willing not to be civil. And Gingrich uses television. He uses C-SPAN, which is the channel that covers Congress, as a way, as a platform to get out very conservative ideas about foreign policy uh, to the public. He is constantly causing a certain level of chaos in the House of Representatives. And initially, many Republicans are like, I don't know if we can do this. Uh, but by 1989, uh, he gets a, a position in the leadership as minority whip, and he's considered part of the leadership team. Uh, and in 1994, when the Republicans take control of Congress, he is named the Speaker of the House. So he moves from being this maverick who will do anything and who ignores the rules uh, to a leader who keeps doing the same thing. But now that's what you can do as a Republican politician. And he wins. I mean, he, he helps usher the Republicans into a great midterm victories. I've been reading a lot about him recently. I think he came under fire in another recent book, The Meanest Man in Congress, which is not, by the way, about him. But but that, who say that his slash and burn politics become the model for the future. And by focusing on wedge issues, how did that force the parties and voters further apart? Yeah, so basically what you see in the 90s uh, with Gingrich, with Lee Atwater, with others, with many, many Republicans from this period, they are they are making a stoking division the strategy of party politics. And they do it not only when it comes time to campaign, but they are also doing it. Uh, in Congress when they're thinking of what legislation to propose. So you take a public which might be gray on a lot of issues. Maybe they, they're not clearly for or against, but the party is offering them choices which are starker uh, in terms of what is possible. And they're defining issues in a very uh, black or white way uh, on television and in other forms of media. And so uh, the shift in the 90s and early 2000s and certainly within the Republican Party is more polarization, pushing the public to be polarized, and really fueling and giving support to those elements of our political system uh, which are on that page. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important change that happens. Right. The contract with America Playbook called Democrats crooks, traitors, and thugs. And this brand of talk is concurrent with the rise of Rush Limbaugh and talk radio. Here we go. This is Paul Shanklin as Al Sharpton about Barack Obama. Barack, the magic Negro, lives in D.C. The L.A. Times, they call him that cause he's not authentic like me. Also running along another track is Howard Stern, a smut-talking shock jock, both gaining followers as an, an early internet media. So how did these sources compound or, or reflect the differences in culture and politics? And maybe a bigger question is, are they reflecting or just compounding? Well, part of what happens in the media is it's literally fragmented, the way it's delivered. This is really important and hard for people today to remember. It wasn't the same way 40 years ago. So we move basically from an era in the 70s where you have three major networks that dominate TV news. You have a handful of really major newspapers, and even radio uh, was shaped uh, by some you know, big, big broadcasters. 
and and by the 2000s and through today, you're talking about a, a, a place where information, entertainment, news is disseminated through really hyper-specific channels and outlets. And uh, so part of what is happening is every voice finds its own audience or nurtures its own audience. And that is a way in which division happens. Uh, it's also hard for anyone to control anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And so uh, part of the story we talk, not just about Howard Stern, but comparable forms of popular culture uh, is even though cultural conservatives are saying we need to contain everything and control everything, that's just not going to happen anymore. Uh, and so the fragmentation of the media um, really kind of helps create a, a space where these divisions find many ways to uh, produce and reproduce themselves. Yeah. And we're, if we're talking about how the groundwork is being laid for a fractured culture we live in now, was the media responding to or answering a need of a population that did not have that voice or... <laughs> promoting it. Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I mean, the great thing about being a historian is you can always say it's both. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we feel that way. I mean, meaning there are real divisions in American society. And, and we really want to highlight those. People are not in agreement on some big questions. And on even issues like sexuality, it becomes very apparent uh, by the time we're in the 21st century that not everyone's on the same page and, and people are not going to be quiet about these kinds of divisions, whether you're a religious right advocate uh, against some of the changes that are taking or, or taking place or the gay rights movement, which starts to insist that uh, you should have gay marriage as a, as a legal right. So those divisions are real. Uh, but at the same time, we do want to argue that the institutions, the way they reform after all the trauma and tumult of the 60s is to foster division, mm -hmm. whether it's the way parties are reaching out to voters based on these fault lines or the way in which our media institutions are reforming to provide information and to provide news that also takes, you know, the, the most divisive parts of our country and brings them out. So they're working hand in hand. There's very little pushing against it. And I think that's the biggest difference in the period we study from the period like the 40s and the 50s. There's little that uh, is powerful that's saying the divisions are not good mm -hmm. and, and trying to direct uh, the public conversation in different directions. The effect of these wedge politics of the media sending people to their corners rather into the public square. The other effect that it has is effectively purging moderates from our political voices. So, you know, the left is going further to the left. The right is going further to the right. What has happened to the ideological, I guess, diversity inside of those parties? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the moderates uh, don't have a great place at the table. And uh, the way uh, the politics certainly works, but also the way in which the media works, uh, those voices are not well received. And so it gets back to a question of how do things work uh, if we're really going to uh, remake politics to give that center more of a voice. Again, we do argue it's more pronounced in the GOP than the Democratic Party. You saw in 2018, for example, 
moderate Democrats did pretty well in, in a lot of the races across the country. Um, but if you really want to change the way that the politics works, the way it pushes toward the divisions and pushes toward the base, you need to deal with the institutions. You have to look at how districts are drawn uh, as a serious issue, not a marginal issue. You have to look at the way campaigns are financed to think, can we finance them in ways that actually promote new voices? And we have to look uh, not just at politics, but we have to look at the way the news works. And in the boardrooms of networks and newspapers, they have to think kind of what are the incentives we're putting out there uh, for reporters and what are we responding to? Uh, and do we have to change things if we want to bring in different kinds of voices? Well, the other important development that people have access to media in their own hands, and this really comes out through the other fissure that you discuss, race. The Obama election was cheered, of course, as a sign that we'd reached post-racial America. We know that that wasn't true. We lived through Charleston. We've seen all these cell phone videos of police shootings of unarmed black men and convictions of many, though not all the police involved. Charlottesville, of course. So what are these revealing about the shifts in how America both sees itself and how it is at odds with that vision? This has been building for decades, and and, and that's part of what we want to argue that some of the, the tension and anger that has really come out on the streets uh, and elsewhere during the Trump era is the culmination of many decades of these divisions brewing. And I think part of what we're seeing now is, is what is out there. And I think some people are surprised, but it's very real. And uh, I think it reflects uh, what you see on issues such as race or what you see on issues such as uh, what should happen in the 220 election uh, is not just a manifestation of how people feel about President Trump, but it is uh, kind of where a lot of the country has moved after several decades of fighting and creating institutions that uh, support those kinds of divisions. But in some areas, I think it's pretty shocking for people to see on race relations, for example, that this hasn't been settled, that 2008 was not what the promise had been when Obama was elected, and that the voices of opposition to certain kinds of, of basic racial justice are much stronger than anyone imagined. We're getting an historian's perspective on what divides America with Julian Zelizer, co-author of Fault Lines, The History of the United States Since 1974. With the rise of conservative talk media on television and radio and, you know, the parade of pundits that we hear on both sides of the political aisle have had a huge effect. And I can't help but wondering what happens when an Ann Coulter accuses Trump of being weak for concessions in a government shutdown. What happens if, a, you know, a Fox News host says he's faltering on the wall or on background checks. What's following what in terms of politics and the agenda of conservative talk media? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, look, I, I can't disentangle it. I, I could say that I, I think uh, the conservative media is more than just a source reflecting uh, what politicians say or what the public is feeling. It is a really formidable political presence at this point. I think the ideas that uh, the network Fox for sure puts out there and some of the websites can help shape public opinion.
opinion. So I could imagine if, if for some reason the network generally turned hard against the president and really started to produce stories from a conservative perspective that lambasted what the president was doing and his policies, and you saw this consistently, it would have an effect. I mean, it, President Trump thrives on the audience that Fox helped create, and and Fox has helped to shape the Republican Party. Um, but but right now that's not happening, and and I think more pertinent is the way in which the network has been pretty much aligned with the administration and and part of the Republican coalition. What kind of perspective do you get from students as you and Professor Cruz were teaching this? I mean, these are people who grew up, they're digital natives, and they grew up with these diverging media sources being their framework for understanding the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, you, you always have to remember as a professor when your students were born, uh, because everything that's familiar to you, certainly both in the course and in the book, uh, we're teaching and writing about the story of our lives. And we are familiar with everything in this book, not just as historians, but as people. And so the biggest trick for us or challenge for us has been to make sense of it as historians, to take what we lived through and to try to write about it the same way we'd write about the New Deal or the Civil War and to see what was important and what wasn't and what were the trends and uh, what was more marginal that seemed big at the time. Students aren't familiar with almost any of this. So hmm. when I teach the lecture on 9-11, uh, I always start the class with a five-minute video clip playing behind me where you see the news of the morning of 9-11 unfold from the weather report saying it looks like a beautiful day in New York to the first plane hitting to the towers falling uh, and the sheer chaos and horror that happens. And I show that because I realize my students know what 9-11 is, but they didn't really live through it. Some of them did as, as little kids. Now they haven't even. But for them, this is all history. You know, really, their first memories are maybe the Obama years. So everything before this, it's like the job we have with any other period. It's to bring it to life. It's to bring the characters front and center and, and to explain what did all this add up to. Mm. I know historians don't speculate generally, but I couldn't help but think. But Richard Nixon claimed executive privilege when special prosecutor Archibald Cox wanted to access the White House tapes. And it makes me wonder, if he were president now with access to the kind of megaphone of social media and fully aligned conservative media, would he have resigned? Yeah, I th it's hard to tell. We don't do counterfactuals, but you can make an argument, no, he would have survived, that a lot of the uh, pillars that uh, certainly President Trump can rely on were not available to Nixon. And so whether you're talking about how the public sees executive power or how it tolerates a lot of executive power to the role the conservative media has played today in giving support to a president who is uh, in, in trouble, uh, Nixon didn't have any of that. And so he is president right when the whole world of conservatism is really just taking form, the movement, the media, the ideas. Trump is at the other end of this. And a lot of what he counts on is the world that's been created in between.
Yeah. Well, your argument that these divisions have been long in the making, then that we've lost faith in the possibility of national unity. Given the echo chambers that most of us live in, is unity even valued? It's not right now. I think it's more nostalgic when you hear about it. Uh, But I think when push comes to shove in a lot of the world of politics and in a lot of the world of our culture, we're not really seeking unity. We're seeking different perspectives on big issues where it's not clear where the common ground would be or if people really are serious about getting there. If that is the goal, and, and it might not be, and, and it might be fine not to be there, but if it's the goal, we need serious introspection about the way we go about the business, the rules of the game, the way uh, all these institutions work. We need that kind of conversation. Otherwise, I'm not convinced people are serious about getting to some kind of of unified place. I think now a lot of people are more comfortable with the idea that uh, a divided America is is part of what uh, is, the country's about, and, and uh, that's where we're going to be for a while. Julian Zelizer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. All right, Kendrick Lamar says we're going to be all right. So we'll we'll put it in his hands as we say goodbye to Julian Zelizer. He's co-author of Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. There's more in the book and on his appearance with his co-author Kevin Cruz at the Decatur Book Festival on September 1 over the Labor Day weekend. We're going to be all right. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We're going to be all right. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. Special thanks to Bram Sable-Smith for mixing this segment. Don Smith keeps us in line as our Dean of Grammar, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought from GBB. Lord knows, 20 of them in my Chevy. Tell them all to come and get me, reaping everything I sow. So my karma come in heaven, no preliminary hearings. On my record, I'm a gangster in silence for the record. Uh.